This morning, our text we're looking at is printed in your bulletin this morning. We're going to look at uh, another story uh, from the life of Elijah. If you've been with us uh, since the first of the year, you know that we've, we're doing a series on looking at the life of really two of the prominent prophets from the Old Testament. And uh, at least initially, we're looking at the lives of the life of Elijah. Beginning in 1923, a small pub, a Scottish pub in Daltrey, hosted an annual liars contest. In the first eight years of this contest, Fraser Patrick McKinnon won the title all eight times. Um, his final victory occurred in 1930 um, when Fraser both retired from the contest and he won at the same time. How did in the world did he pull this off? Well, he, he basically won it and retired with these words, I regret I cannot enter the contest this year as I cannot tell a lie. Um, yeah, it takes a little bit to sort of register exactly what he said. Um, the story that we'll be looking at this morning is really um, a liar's contest would be the best description. It is one of the greatest, uh, if not, and there's, we, we argued about that even this morning, even, if not the greatest story in the Old Testament. Um, some of you know, and this probably doesn't even need to be said, but I grew up in the Deep South. This reminds me of a song by Marshall Tucker called Fire on the Mountain for some reason. Um, why should we even look at these stories? Uh, well, one of the reasons, it, it is a part of our Bible. It tells us our history and our purpose. Um, you'll never understand the New Testament without it. What do I mean by that? The New Testament is written with these stories as the backdrop, the foundation of everything that it has to say. And more importantly, these stories really inform and tell us about Jesus. Jesus invited us to learn about him from these stories. It's crucial. Uh, Elijah stands as one of the greatest heroes of the Old Testament. And here in this story, he stands alone uh, against astronomical odds is the best way to describe it. Look with me as I, yes, and I'm going to read the entire chapter uh, 18 uh, this morning here, the Word of God. After a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. Uh, while Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each, and had supplied them with food and water. Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so we'll not have to kill any of the animals. So they divided the land they were to cover. Ahab going in one direction, Obadiah in another. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him, bowed down to the ground and said, is it really you, my lord, Elijah? Yes, he replied. Go tell your master Elijah is here. What have I done wrong, asked Obadiah, that you're handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death as surely as the Lord your God lives. There's not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And wherever a nation or kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear they could not find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah's here. I don't know where the Spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. If I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he'll kill me. 
Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, fifty in each, supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah's here. He will kill me. Elijah said, As the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I'm not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets of, on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, Am I the only one of the Lord's prophets left? But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves. Let him cut it into pieces. Put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. Since there are so many of you, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull, given them, and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until the blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response, no answer. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him. He prepared the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seers of seed. He arranged the wood and cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you're turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and also licked the water up out of the trench. And all the people saw this. They fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them. Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat and drink. For there is the sound of heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel. He bent down to the ground, put his face between his knees. 
Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and looked. There's nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. Seven times the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the cloud grew black with, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose. A heavy rain started falling. And Ahab rose off to Jezreel. Uh, the power of the Lord came on Elijah. And he tucked his cloak into his belt. He ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for your great love and mercy. We thank you for this story, this story that stands out among many. Um, we pray that you would be with us as we look into this account of your prophet and your people. We ask, O oh God, that you would fall on us as you fell on that sacrifice centuries ago. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. One writer said this, Why do people in churches seem like cheerless or cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute? She goes on to write, On the whole, I don't find Christians outside the catacombs sufficiently sensible of their conditions. Does anyone have a foggiest idea what sort of plow, power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill on Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should lift their life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our chairs. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we could never return. That's an apt sort of description, certainly a summary of the story that we just read. What happens uh, in the Bible? What happens when God actually shows up? What would it mean if we actually stopped dabbling sort of in religion? Because most of us, if we're honest with ourselves and others, we like the idea and we think it would be nice, but not this. Certainly not this story that we read this morning. And yet, uh, the amazing point about this confrontation, the amazing point about the story is this. Uh, this God, the one that's described here, is the only one. That our ideas about God ultimately lead to our ideas about life and actually the way that we live our life. Our commitments have consequences that engaging God cannot be a matter of detachment. Uh, as if sort of we can put our mind to this and then we can put our lives to something else. It's put sort of starkly in the story that um, you have to decide. You have to conclude, actually, which one of these is actually lying to you. If God is real, then He refuses to be sort of the topic of discussion might be the best way to describe that. He can't just be an idea. One writer said this, if Christianity is false, it's of no importance, actually. If it's true, it's of infinite importance. The one thing it can't be is moderately important. Just the presence that we see in the story. The first is where he's not found might be the best description. You can't Find this God on your own. Why would I say that? Ahab, at least initially in the story, I don't know if you picked up on this, is unable to find Elijah at all. 
He actually is unable to find God even in the story. Uh, He can't feed his own people. Uh, He can't even feed the animals. Ahab, this king, is completely impotent in the face of the problems that actually not only faces him, but actually all the people that he is supposedly to serve. And by this story, uh, we've had three years of no progress is the best description here. Uh, His trying, his striving had not actually been enough at all. That God and Elijah is the one who must show himself if he's ever going to be found. He must take the initiative. Just to look at the other side of the equation just or the other side of the contest just for a minute, Baal um, basically presented a life that could be managed. Uh, Baal was controlled by technique. That The secrets, the problems of life, the things that we know intimately and well, uh, could somehow be tamed. The prophets, and what's hilarious in the story, is they go to extreme measures to be heard. It's like kids in your house, you know, if they want something and and you sort of ignore them, uh, their response is they just yell louder. Um, They make more noise. Uh, Elijah mocking them suggests uh, that this God has actually gone to the bathroom is literally what the text is saying. And what you find is their response, they beat themselves. Their bizarre behavior becomes even more extreme. Uh, Literally, the text says that they're crazy. They're outside of themselves. The more effort that they exert, the greater the failure. Their God simply couldn't deliver. Then God shows up. He's personal is the best description. He can't be manipulated. He is not, will not be manipulated. He doesn't respond to that any more than you do. At least give him, this God, the credit that you would give your friend. Because faith in this story is not a generality. It's not a vague idea or notion about who God is. Ahab, in the story, he actually cares more for his horses than he does his people. I don't know if you picked up on that. His own concern is that I might have to kill a horse, not that I've got actually people dying on me. The lie doesn't actually is not found in the prophets, but actually in himself and in his people. Ahab blames his circumstances. Uh, He blames his life. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Um, Finding Elijah, at least initially, would solve his problem because Elijah is really the problem. He's the troubler of Israel is the way he describes him. If he could get rid of Elijah, then my life and all my troubles would somehow be resolved. Instead, what we see is that Elijah's or Ahab's problems have a deep root to them, much deeper than he's willing to sort of face up to. Because up to this point in time, he only cares for himself and only cares for his stuff. He's worried about all these things uh, when, to just put it bluntly, he should have been worried about God, but he doesn't seem to be. Some of us here this morning have the idea that God is kind of like a good luck charm. One writer said he's the rabbit foot redeemer. Pocket size, handy, easily packaged, easily understood, easily diagrammed. Uh, you can put his picture on a wall. You can stick it in your wallet as insurance. You can frame him even. Uh, you can dangle him from your rearview mirror or put him on your dashboard either way. His specialty, uh, this God, is getting you out of jams. 
You need a parking place? You rub the Redeemer. Um, you need help on a quiz. If you're a student, what do you do? You pull out the rabbit's foot. You pray that morning even though you haven't studied. Um, no need to really have a relationship with him at all. No need to love him. You just keep him in your pocket next to uh, any of the other charms that happen to exist there. For others, um, if this analogy fits, you've got the Aladdin's lamp redeemer. Uh, you need a new job. You need a new car. You need a new and improved spouse. Your wish is his command. And what's even better about this, what's even more convenient, is that he re-enters the lamp when you're done. For others, we have the Monty Hall Redeemer. Uh, we know this one well. Okay, let's make a deal. Okay, for 52 Sundays a year, I'll put on the costume. I'll show up. Uh, I'll endure the, all the sermons you throw at me for 52 weeks. In exchange for that, uh, you'll give me, and then we fill in the blank. There's few demands, no challenges, no need for sacrifice, no need for commitment. What this story really brings into light is that you can't find him on your own. For all of us here, we think we will have God's presence by trying harder. Some of you kill yourselves um, in effort, and yet the deep issues, the problems are still present. If you're a Christian, the way we do this is through religious uh, flurry is the best description. God will surely work if I, and then it looks something like this, attend more studies, get more involved, attend seminars, read books, teach, give more, um, have a certain worship style, music, etc. And then, if that were not enough, we do the same for our children. They must attend a certain school. And we push this on those around us. And what lies at the sort of underneath the heart of it all is the same rationale. I can have his presence on my efforts, on my terms. If only we, then God will. We begin by God coming to us and we think somewhere along the way we sort of take over the driver's seat. We certainly are living right, and if others would, then we've got that down part. We become self-important or just important in general. Look, you can't take care of God. He takes care of you. Uh, you can't find him on your own. He has to show up is the best description. You can't politely manage him. If this story tells us anything, it's that God absolutely will not, cannot be managed. Uh, if you're not a Christian this morning, you think of Christianity is a way to sort of bring control to your life. It, it's a different management strategy. I would say this, it's a nice addiction to your life would be another description. And yet, the problem in this story sort of highlights the difficulties with this. You really can't control this God. 38 and 39, he burns up all the others I don't know if you notice, when God shows up, he consumes everything. It's not just the bull that's gone. The altar's gone, the stones are gone, the water's gone. Everything in the vicinity is actually gone. Um, and this is the problem. This God is a completely scary thing. And everyone there is suddenly confronted with the reality, the person. He's not a religious idea anymore. The idea of God showing up for other people is very attractive. In the current environment that Elijah finds himself is the idea that God was popular and relevant. It scratched an itch. And what do I mean by that? 
in the ancient Near East, you served God with your glands. It was deeply sexual, actually. Sex acts were regularly committed or done in the worship services. And what's running counter underneath the service, this is the practice that's been done for years. History is actually on Baal's side. We've always done it that way is the way that they would express it. We've always built our lives on these things. We've always built our lives on our possessions, always on our careers, always on the backs of our children. Every community in every location in every age always says the same thing. Yet, more effort is more failure. The late Raymond Dillard, who was a professor of Old Testament, said this, The idols of our day may not be images of wood and stone. They're far more likely to be our own lust or desires, money, power, position, security, and relationships. Perhaps the easiest way to identify them is to ask what we serve. Idols are simply those things that we're tempted to trust instead of God. What are the things we strive for? Where are the things we look in order to achieve security or a sense of well-being? Elijah, can I serve God in money? No. How about God and success? No. Just a little no. There's no wavering between these two opinions. If God, if the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, money, power, security, sex, is God, follow him. And then what you see is the reality. That's what the others offer. That God, the God who answers by fire, he is God. Just the imagery of fire itself that reoccurs throughout the Old Testament. This God is a God of fire, intensity and brilliance. A fire basically means this, he's something that I'm not. And he's something, he's not what I want him to be. I want you to notice, what is your name? God doesn't answer by saying, well, tell me, what do you want me to be? If so, God is not a God of fire, he's actually a God of clay. You can't shape fire, you can't structure it, you can certainly shape clay. Fire corrects our reality, it defines it. You can't put it in a box or a frame. Some of you probably don't. I love playing with Play-Doh. I still do, even at my age. There's something uh, very relaxing about playing with Play-Doh. I'm not, I don't eat it. I just play with it. Um, um, the question is, you know, you can make Play-Doh almost anything. If you want to make a bright blue snake, you're, you're welcome to do that. The question for us as we look at this story is, do you have a Play-Doh God? I can, I can tell you this morning, if you do, you'll never find the real God. Because most people that you run across will say this, I know you have to have faith, and I know you have your faith, but I need something more. If I become a Christian, will I have to do this or that? Because I really don't want that. What that means is really you're looking for a God of clay, not a fiery one. You're looking for a God that actually fits you, and not a God that you fit to. Clay is molded by the toucher. Fire melts the one who touches it, as we see here. You, tur you touch fire, and it actually turns you to clay. You're the one that's molded and changed. If you want a real God, if you want the real God, you must see the one that can and will contradict you. If he's really God, he'll tell you things that you don't want to hear. And I can promise you, he'll bring things into your life that you don't want either. Um, the real question, as we look at this story, is how close can I get to God without being destroyed? We also need to see the beauty here because Elijah shows up on the scene against all odds. I don't know if you added the numbers or not. They're pretty easy to add in your head. This is 850 to 1, by the way. Um, 
But it wasn't just that. Uh, There's also a broken altar that Elijah has to deal with. And Mount Carmel, in case we don't know, this is actually Baal's home court. Um, So you're playing, Elijah is playing uh, in Baal's court, his home territory. And not only that, Elijah's giving them first shot. Uh, He's actually letting them lead the, the confrontation. All the artwork that you find shows Elijah with a lightning bolt in his hand. This Mount Carmel is sacred ground to Baal. But what we find here is that God's power and His presence doesn't depend on the number of cheerleaders. So what does Elijah do? He rebuilds the altar. There's a sacrifice that's going to be made that it requires, and he soaks everything. Because we all know and the people in the ancient Near East knew this as well, is that wet stuff doesn't burn. And yet it's completely soaked. Elijah's, the way he does this is in direct contrast. There's no beating, there's no dancing, there's no shouting, no all-day rituals at all. It just seems to be a lack of, the comparison is just boring almost. He doesn't badger, he doesn't course, he doesn't manipulate. It's not that God will do these things if I get busy, if I get passionate with my religious activity. God will work only if... This is grace, not gimmicks, is the best description. In other words, Elijah doesn't think, if I pray a certain way, uh, then God shows up. Instead, fire falls, and it consumes everything. Fire in the Old Testament is really the sign of God's acceptance. Fire was God's green light, uh, so to speak. It was His approval on everything that's done. It's not just the beauty of what we see. It's also the grace. Why kill just Baal's prophets? Perhaps you didn't pick up on that. He circles or gathers together all Baal prophets, but he seems to leave a lot of people behind, like... The entire people of God were guilty too at this point in time. Um, It would have been easier to just have God, the fire, not only fall on the sacrifice, but everybody there but Elijah, actually. Because the people at this point in the story are not neutral. They're not wavering. They have already decided. um, Their worship indicates this in verse 24. They're already fully invested in Baal. Verse 26 basically says that they're weary of this shuffle. Literally, they hobbled around the altar that was made. That's exactly what the writer says. This exhausting life that they had erected for themselves. What we normally think about God is this. If, if He's there to catch me making mistakes, He'll destroy me. God says, I am intensely holy, but I have to come down. Actually, nobody, no other religion on the planet gives you this kind of answer to the problem of how in the world are we going to meet with this God and not be destroyed? See, the way back, even in the story, the way to actually find God's presence is through grace and reconciliation that God provides something that we're not. Through another altar, actually, that was built. 
Fire was the demonstration that this sacrifice that Elijah gave was acceptable, that he approved. This morning, if you're a Christian, you have a place. Not only is God uh, truly God, but he's also truly gracious. That what you see in the story is not just proof of his presence, but also an invitation. This fire is incredibly captivating. And just the glory that we find. One man standing, I don't know if you know this, offering a sacrifice for all these people that were absolutely wayward at this point in time. You have a prophet standing on a mountain, sacrificing alone, interceding alone. Which brings us to another prophet who goes up on a hill, uh, actually, in the New Testament. He offers not a bull but himself to those who give their lives, their energy, and their efforts to a God that cannot answer. What you see on the cross is someone, Jesus, consumed by the anger of God so that you could stand in His presence, so that you could actually experience that fire and that beauty. And God says over and over again that the way that you can live, the way you can have a relationship with me is if someone substitutes and takes hold of that fire. A sacrifice offered in the midst of God's fire. A substitute that was slain, put into the fire, and the New Testament tells us why. Hebrews says that there's one who would go into the fire once for all by a sacrifice. He was consumed so that this morning you and I can sit here and not be. Because Jesus experienced the full wrath of God, we're able to have God speak to us. And he actually says to us, come close, know me. Let me actually burn within you. His presence doesn't destroy you. Instead, a Christian is somebody that says sacrifice has been accepted and then the rains come. If you actually get what the story is pointing us to, uh, you can actually stand like Elijah. You can stand in the face of all the promises that promise you happiness. What this means is if you get this, when the world says you must look marvelous to be anything, to have status, to be secure, you can look at Jesus, his giving himself for you, his offering his beauty, and you can actually look at those promises and say, absolutely not. I can stand and I'll follow him. I can trust him wherever he leads me. Whatever he asks, I have seen his beauty and I know that this God has nothing but his best for me and he has my back. Look, go and look. Go back and see what Jesus did. See that he was actually consumed for you. He was burned and consumed so that this morning we can burn and not be consumed. The only, you can only be passionate, you can only be burning for him when you see this kind of God. Some of you know the story of St. Patrick. He was born... Somewhere in the east, probably born in Scotland and uh, in Great Britain, or at least we think. Around 405, when Patrick was a teenager, somewhere between the ages of 14 and 16, he was captured by Irish pirates uh, and taken to be a slave in Ireland. After six years, he was told in a dream that he should be ready for a courageous effort that would take him back to his homeland. He ran away from his owner and traveled 200 miles to the coast, the ship on which he escaped was actually taking dogs to France. 
At some point, he finally made his way back to Great Britain, back to his family. Um, but there, he studied in the monastery from 412 to about 415. He heard in a dream, actually, what he heard was the voices of the people in Ireland, uh, the land that actually had enslaved him. In that dream, he heard them cry out to him, um, and he read a poem, The Voice of the Irish. Patrick writes this, It was not my grace, but God who overcame in me, so that I came to the heathen Irish to preach the gospel to people newly come to believe that the Lord took from the ends of the earth. There's no reliable account of his work in Ireland um, where he actually returned as a missionary. Uh, legends abound that he drove the snakes out of Ireland. That's one of them. Um, that he describes the Trinity by referring to the shamrock. Uh, that he single-handedly re- converted the en- entire nation of Ireland. Um, what is true is that Patrick established the church throughout Ireland on lasting foundations. He traveled throughout this country that held him captive, preaching, teaching, building churches, opening schools, monasteries. He converted Chiefs, everywhere, he supported his preaching, uh, get this, with miracles. What stands in his writings um, of being called by God to the work he'd undertaken, his determination, was simply this phrase, I, Patrick, a sinner, and the most ignorant and of least account among the faithful, despised by many, I owe it to God's grace that so many people should, through me, be born again to him. This morning we gather at this place, we gather to taste and to know, to experience God's glory given to us, not based on our efforts. We come to have a God who molds us, frames us, changes us. Uh, May it be true of us this morning as we gather before him. Let's pray together the prayer of confession that's printed in your bulletin. O Holy One, we call to you and name you as eternal ever-present and boundless in love. Yet there are times when we fail to recognize you in the dailiness of our lives. Sometimes shame clenches tightly around our hearts and we hide from ourselves and others. Sometimes fear makes us small and we miss the chance to speak. Sometimes doubt invades our hopefulness and we degrade our own wisdom. Holy God, In the daily round from sunrise to sunset, remind us again of your holy presence falling near us and in us. Free us from shame and self-doubt. Help us to see you in the moment-by-moment possibilities to live honestly and to act courageously. Let's spend a few moments now in his presence.